book of Matthew chapter 28, we've been taking time to consider this commission with a little bit more depth than what is ordinarily done and perhaps what would be ordinarily done in a series on the book of Matthew. This afternoon, my plans are to do the same type of thing with the temptation of Christ. We're going to begin an introduction in Matthew chapter 4 of that temptation and really go more in depth with it than perhaps I would do if we were just going through it in a series. Because I do think that it is important for us at this time to consider that temptation, both its discontinuity. There is a sense that you and I will never ever repeat this temptation. It is unique to Jesus Christ. And yet there is some continuity as we watch our Lord and Master resist the devil. And so I want to give a consideration to that over the next several weeks, and we'll see how the Lord ministers to our heart with that. This morning, Matthew chapter 28, and we'll begin reading again in verse 16 down through the end of the chapter. Our subject this morning is the command to make disciples of all nations. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, and here's the command, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have been giving consideration that this commission isn't the greatest command that Jesus ever gave. We are to be teaching all things that He has given to us and to observe it. But the commission is the means, in a very summary statement, is the means by which God's eternal purpose is to be fulfilled in every generation. No individual can fulfill the Great Commission. But we all have a part, and we all have been gifted to be a part of this commission in a local New Testament assembly. This commission, as we have learned, was given to these 11 disciples. It was not given directly to us, although we have examined this, the church of God does have warrant to take both the commission and the authority behind the commission unto itself. That authority and commission was given to these 11 men 
those apostles delivered it to the churches. And it delivered both the commission and the authority of that commission. And we know that because Christ says in verse 20, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's not just a promise for those 11 men, is it? That's a promise for the church in every generation of which our Lord has given to that generation. He is with the church who is seeking to fulfill this commission and ultimately to see the mystery of his will being accomplished not only in that local New Testament geographical assembly, but into all the world. Now when you get given a commission, the very first thing that you want to know when you're given a commission is what authority does the one giving it have? I mean, if my five-year-old son, <clears throat> who I don't have but used to be five, if my five-year-old son gave up and gave me the commission, that would be a little bit different than if perhaps the President of the United States gave me a commission, right? The one who has given us this commission is the one who has, verse 18, all authority. He has all authority, meaning no one and nothing else has any God-given authority other than him. Now, does he delegate his authority for our stewardship? And the answer to that is yes. But he's the one who has all authority. He's the one who will retain all authority. And today, as we are hearing his voice, and as we have gathered ourselves together in a local New Testament assembly, he is still the one with all authority to tell us what to do and how to do it. No one else has that ultimate authority. <clears throat> but he does. And because he has all authority, then that means that we ought to give the utmost hearing to what he has to say. Not only in these few verses, but all throughout the New Testament. He who loves me keeps what? My commandments. Well, who said that? Jesus Christ said that. The one who loves him keeps the commandments that he has given. Is this a commandment? Yes, this is a commandment. Just like walking in love or any other commandment that our Lord has given through those apostles. What does it mean to have all authority? <clears throat> well, we looked at that illustration in Romans 8. <clears throat> A person who has authority can say to someone, go, and there to what? Go. A one who has authority can say to someone, come here. And that person should come here. Drop what they're doing, get up, come. A person who has authority has the authority to say, do this. And you're to what? 
to do it. And you remember the situation where our Lord was encountered by a man and He said this, Lord, I'll follow You, but first I have to go bury my Father. What did the Lord say? Let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow Me. Did He really mean that His Word takes precedent over every other word? Yes or no? Yes. That's exactly what He means. This isn't, I have all authority, so you get to be the final authority. That you get to judge whether you like what I say or not. No, He has all authority. And in this context, the one who has all authority has said to go and make disciples of all the nations. Now, where did he get this authority? Well, he got it from God the Father. And I want us to go back to the prophet Daniel, and let's just review what we looked at last week. Daniel chapter 7, because as I mentioned, this commission is flowing out of the foundation of what the Ancient of Days said to the Son of Man, that is Christ. Daniel chapter 7. I'll begin reading in verse 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, this is Daniel, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. (coughs) His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Christ has been given dominion. He's been given authority. How much? All authority. All dominion. In heaven and on earth. He's been given glory. He's going to be the light in that new heaven and earth in the future. He's been given a kingdom. Both an earthly kingdom and a kingdom that will never ever pass away. It was God the Father who gave to the incarnate Son of God this authority. Why? Because he could trust him with the power. And he proved that throughout his whole earthly ministry. He would say in the book of John, nothing originates of myself. What I do, I have seen the Father do. That's an amazing servant, isn't it? He's not thinking his own thoughts. He's not doing his own will. He's not speaking his own words. 
And he's certainly not abusing the power that has been given to him by God the Father. Men on earth and governments of this earth abuse their power. And you've perhaps heard the worldly statement that power always corrupts. That is true under this Son. It is not true with the Son of God. He's been given authority to rule on behalf of God. And Christ's dominion, verse 14, is everlasting. It will never pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Death has no power over it. Death has no power over its inhabitants. Christ's throne is everlasting. His kingdom is everlasting. His people will be everlasting because of the work of Christ Himself. And the aim of which God the Father gave to God the Son incarnate, the aim and the purpose of giving Him this dominion, glory, and a kingdom, verse 14, was with this aim that all the peoples, not just Jews, but that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him, might slay for Him. This is another phrase, a synonym for to be His disciple. That's the aim of His authority. And folks, if that's the aim of His authority, then it certainly makes sense that the aim of the Gospel is to make disciples. Right? To make disciples, to make slaves of all men. There are no people out there that are not under slavery. All mankind is under slavery to the devil. His lust they will do. Or you can be in slavery to the risen Christ. Choose your slavery wisely. The aim of His dominion is a people of different languages, different ethnicities, different families to serve Him Or we could say this, here's another one, to obey Him. And that's exactly what this commission is doing. I was invited to a mission conference back in October of 2020, and I preached this message from Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the Word that makes disciples. This is exactly what this commission is saying. Make disciples of all the nations. How are you going to do that? Going to all the nations. Baptizing disciples of all the nations. Teaching all the nations to observe all that Christ commanded. This is the aim and purpose of the commission. And this authority of which He has been given 
both in heaven and on earth was manifested during his earthly ministry. And I just want to reemphasize this. His miracles did not point us to the fact that he could do miracles for me. His miracles were to point to himself as being the one that was promised and the one who has the authority. He has authority over every germ. Amen? He has authority. He has authority over your body. He has authority over your spirit. He has authority over every principality and power in heavenly places. He has authority over the devil. If he says to the devil, go, the devil goes. He has all authority. And folks, when we think about this and we think about ourselves, and we think about our own spirit, even as genuine disciples in obeying Him swiftly, how we fall short of His obedience to His own Father. And yet one day we will be like Him. We will have no hesitation to do the will of the Father for eternity. Lord, would You come quickly and grant that to us. In verse 19, as I have already mentioned, we have an authoritative imperative to the church. He says in verse 19, make disciples of all the nations. And you've probably heard this before, but it is good to reemphasize this. That in our Greek New Testament, the command or the imperative is with make disciples. The phrase go and baptizing and teaching are participles. They're not commands but tell us how to carry out the imperative. Now follow this. Because they are participles to tell us how to carry out the imperative, the participles end up carrying the authority with it. Everybody hear that? In other words, going, baptizing, teaching, that's how we're to do it. But... Is that really how we are to do it or can we come up with some other way? The answer to that is no. The participles carry the force of the imperative, of the command to make disciples. How do we do that? Well, we go to all the nations and we carry with us the gospel of Jesus Christ. We make disciples through proclamation And those who hear and learn of the Father come to Him 
And those who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. And being in his presence and in his son, we have both an initial desire to obey him and a growing desire to observe all that he has commanded us. This is all, as it were, a package. Going in and of itself is not the only aspect to obey this commission. Sometimes we'll hear people say, I've heard preachers say this, we need to fulfill the Great Commission, we need to go. That's not the only part of the commission. Do we need to go? Yes. Do we need to have the proper content to proclaim? Yes. Do we need to see God work? Amen. But it doesn't stop there. Those who hear and are regenerated and follow then are baptized into local New Testament assemblies so that they gather on a regular, at least weekly basis to come and hear teaching from God-gifted men, we call elders or pastors, so that they will observe all that he has commanded. All of these things together as a package make up the commission. Not just going. And so you can probably imagine that in every local New Testament assembly, every genuine lampstand of the Lord, they're probably doing aspects of this commission all the time. Some churches are stronger in certain aspects of that. That's human frailty. That's human maturity. But blessed is the congregation who takes this means and takes this means seriously and is going and baptizing and teaching. I heard of one church in America, I think this is the only church I've ever heard this of. It is a New Testament assembly, but they have, they, I heard them make this statement, and I didn't ask for proof of this, so I'm just going to take it at their word, that every Lord's Day for almost 30 years they baptize someone. Is that amazing? That, that is amazing. And that is a gift of the Lord. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say every Lord's Day be baptizing. But certainly for us to hear something like that, we just sit back and say thanks be to God. And the church that is co-laboring with this means to see God's eternal purpose accomplished by this commission to all peoples, Christ's own presence and authority is with that church. Now that presence and authority can be in measure, but His presence and authority will be with that assembly. So brethren, what is the command here? Make what? Make disciples. 
How do we begin to do that? <clears throat> Going, now follow this, with the purpose of making disciples. It's not just going and hopefully someone will come up to you and say, what must I do to be saved? Which is a rare thing. It is going <clears throat> with the purpose of making disciples. That discipleship <clears throat> would be seen by that individual following the Lord in believer's baptism. And then that discipleship is continually seen. And they're gathering together with that local New Testament church to be taught to observe all things. And folks, that is one reason why we take the time. I take the time. I believe. I, I, you put a gun to my head, I would actually die for this. That one of the purposes of the pulpit is to go through the whole New Testament. So that we're just not hitting our favorite passages. But we're actually hitting the difficult passages also. For His name's sake. And thanks be to God, you and I in this assembly have seen evidences of both His authority and His presence in our gathering. Hallelujah for that. Unfortunately, that is a more rare thing on the earth than what we think. So there's the imperative <clears throat> to make disciples of all nations. Now, that begs a question. And the question is, <clears throat> what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Well, a disciple is not necessarily someone who is a moral person. Now, would a disciple be a moral person? Yes. But just putting on the garments of morality, like many in Judaism did in Jesus' day, and many do today, does not prove that you're a disciple. Just because you know the Ten Commandments and you can tell people what's right and wrong is not necessarily proof that you are a genuine disciple. <clears throat> Even meeting, the good thing of meeting with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. A genuine disciple is not just a moral person. <clears throat> a genuine disciple is not a person who just prays a prayer. Folks, do lost people pray? Yes or no? You know the answer to that is? Yes. yes. We have a major religious institution that says they're Hail Marys. They're praying. We have Islamic people who pray more frequently than maybe even you do on a structured, formal basis. 
<coughs> Being a disciple is not an attendee. It's not just let's, let's attend the ball game at the church. And the aim of a church is not just to get attendees. What's the aim of a church? Tell me. Make disciples. That's the aim of a church. Now if you think it's hard to get attendees, it's even harder to get disciples. And I think that's one of the reasons why churches don't aim for that. <clears throat> and being a disciple is not merely being a learner. Judaism in that day, that they could set many of them, many of them could quote, beginning in Genesis 1:1, <clears throat> all the way through the end of the book of Deuteronomy, they could quote it. They spent their lives, men like Nicodemus spent their lives learning those five books. And yet, what did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You've got to be born again. Nicodemus was not a disciple. Though he was religious. We have used this phrase <clears throat> that a disciple is a learner-follower. And that is a learning following that arises out of a radical change of heart. It's like a rebirth. And it takes, please hear me, it takes a radical change of heart for a person to be a disciple. This is why our Lord said, you know, even with His own preaching, that it's like casting seed. And there's some by the wayside, and the devil comes and snatches that seed away. But there are some that seed takes root, but the soil is shallow, and it comes up quickly, but by and by it what? It withers away. And one of the greatest evidences of being a genuine disciple is, according to Romans chapter 8, our response to suffering. How we respond to reproach, to isolation, to sneering, to mocking, and perhaps even torture, or even the giving of our what? The giving of our life. And folks, when you look in the Bible, <clears throat> what you find <clears throat> is that that is exactly what was happening in the book of Acts people were becoming learner followers, disciples of the risen Christ. Now I want you to take your Bibles. I just want to look at two passages, three passages here. Turn to Acts chapter 14 first of all. And then we'll look at another passage in Acts. 
for our edification, and we'll end up back in Matthew. <coughs> Acts chapter 14. <coughs> Look at verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, everybody see that? Are they identifying with the apostle? Yes, while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered into the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe, verse 21, and after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many, what? Disciples. There's our phrase, to make disciples. <clears throat> they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then they appointed elders over those disciples. They organized churches. Everybody see that? This is what the early church was doing. They were going with the purpose of making disciples. If you go back a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 11. <clears throat> years ago, <clears throat> I was confronted, many years ago, was confronted with a teaching that said basically something along these lines that <clears throat> you can come to Christ and ask Christ to save you and then when you get saved, you're now a Christian. But then later on, when you really kind of make this second decision, then you dedicate yourself to be a disciple. I don't know if you've ever heard anything along those lines. <clears throat> it's a very popular teaching. This passage that I'm about to read to you destroys that theory. Acts chapter 11, <clears throat> and <clears throat> verse 25. <clears throat> and Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. Now note this. And the disciples were first called what? At Antioch. Everybody see that? So, if we today talk about being a Christian, from a New Testament perspective, what we are saying is, they are a what? They are a disciple. And by the way, when they called the disciples Christians, that wasn't a term of endearment. That was a term of reproach in Paul's day. So here we have, go and make disciples. Did they go and make disciples? 
Yes. Did they preach the word that made disciples? Yes, the gospel makes disciples. And yet, the disciples were gathered. Paul, Barnabas, and other men in the church in Antioch taught them in considerable numbers. And sometime during that year of teaching, they were reproached by being called Christians. The disciples actually took on the label being a Christian or being Christ-like. So when we hear, as we go back to the book of Matthew, and here I want us to go back to Matthew chapter 4. As we go back to Matthew and we hear this phrase, go and make disciples of all nations, could we say, go and make Christians of all nations? Yes or no? Yes, but I would advise it might not be the wisest thing to say in our culture. Perhaps the wisest thing to say is to stick with the words of Christ and say with the commission, Christ is calling everyone to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Sir, ma'am, do you know what being a disciple means? They will probably say, not sure. It is a learner, follower of Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel is intended to do. And in the book of Matthew, we have many illustrations of what a disciple looks like. You could actually say the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, there's some characteristics of a disciple. Poor in spirit, mourn, peacemaking, being persecuted. Those are characteristics, are they not? You're going to find other characteristics as Matthew takes us through this book. We had the centurion. Characteristic of being a disciple is that he acknowledges Jesus' authority and submits to it. But the first instance that we have in the book of Matthew of this disciple, being made a disciple, is in Matthew chapter 4. In verses 18 through 22. Now my intention isn't to really exposit this passage, but it is to bring out one characteristic that is true for all disciples. Verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I don't think it's saying to us that being disciple means that you have to take up fishing. But there is something characteristic here that our Lord does call every disciple to do. And that is, in verse 20 and verse 22, what's the very first word? 
immediately. He said, follow me. And immediately they what? They followed him. The second characteristic is that they followed him. Now there's background to this and there's continuity, discontinuity with this calling. I recognize that. But here you have these two common characteristics. They heard the word. Immediately, they what? They followed. This is what Matthew says is a characteristic of being a disciple. So if you're proclaiming the gospel... He is risen Lord. Every knee shall bow to Him. Every tongue shall confess to Him that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's the one that died for your sins. He's the one that has made atonement. He's the only way to God. What should be our response? If we're a disciple, we immediately. Amen to that. And we follow. We don't say, well, maybe tomorrow. Maybe when I get older, you know, I want to have fun when I'm young, and then when I get older, then, then I'll repent. No, it's an immediate thing. Now, it is true that we're brought to the Lord gradually, and we're brought to the Lord gradually by teaching. John chapter 6 says this. But you know how you're drawn. You hear, you see the light of teaching, and you say in your heart, Amen to that. He gives you more light. You say amen to that. He gives you a little bit more light. You say amen to that. Until the place, you're born again. Just like that blind man. This is what it means <clears throat> to be made a disciple. And folks, being made a disciple is a result of gospel proclamation. I'm going to repeat it again. And it manifests that discipleship by identifying with Christ's body and identifying with Christ's voice. How do you identify with Christ's body? Baptizing them, teaching them. What are you teaching? His Word. There's a recognition both of the body of Christ and the voice of Christ. And this is true all throughout your New Testament. No exceptions to this. And folks, you know that when the words of Christ and the exhortation to bow the knee to Christ is really pressed on people, you will have some who react like the religious Jews did. They will slander you And slander is the meaning of the word devil. Did the religious Jews slander Christ? They will accuse you. The devil accuses the brethren night and day. But the one thing they won't do is bow their knee to what he said.
Now, thankfully, our Lord knows we're not going to be perfect with that, <clears throat> but a genuine disciple does have a heart that wants to be perfect with that. He wants that discipleship. And folks, when you look at the commission in Matthew 28, <clears throat> we need to understand that apart from what I'm preaching to you this morning, if a person is not willing to do this, then they are not manifesting their professed discipleship and allegiance to Christ. I'm not saying that they're lost. I'm just saying that they are not manifesting their professed allegiance to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And apart from what I just gave to you now, if a church is not purposefully seeking to be going and making disciples of all the nations and baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ commanded, then they are not manifesting themselves as a genuine New Testament assembly. We could say they're out of order. Could they be a genuine church? Yes. But they are not in order, meaning they are not lockstep with what Christ has said. So are we to make disciples? Any other alternative? No other alternative. We go to make disciples. We only baptize disciples. And we are to be teaching disciples all things that Christ has commanded. Now, I want to conclude by looking at who are these disciples. And it says, verse 19, <clears throat> make disciples of what? all the nations. In other words, folks, <clears throat> the disciples that are to be made are not just Jewish. Now, the early church had a hard time with that, didn't they? But Christ had been teaching this all throughout His three-year earthly ministry. Did he not deal with a centurion that was a Roman soldier? Yes or no? Did he not deal with a Philippian woman who was a Gentile? Did he not say, other sheep I have that are not of this fold? Did he not say that? Did he not say in Luke chapter 2 that all the nations would be blessed in him? Did he not say to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant that in him all the families, all the ethnicities of the earth would be blessed? Did he not say that? This should have not been a foreign concept to this nation. But folks, it came, it came to be understood through many, many centuries that when the Abrahamic covenant promised <clears throat> that all the families of the earth will be blessed, and I'm speaking very generally, thankfully there are exceptions to what I'm about to say, the Jews came to understand in practice that what it meant is, is that all the families of the earth other than the Jews would be cursed. 
that Israel would be on top and all the other families of the earth would be down here. And folks, I think I think we I think we need to pause and think about this. The church is not to go and make disciples only of young people. That's very popular today. We're going to orient our whole services to young people. Did he say young people? Or did he say all the nations? He said all the nations. He just didn't say America. He just didn't say Israel. He just didn't say a Jew. If I could be so bold, he just didn't say white people. Or black people. Or yellow. Or red. Whatever other color that you want to mention. He said all the what? All the nations all the ethnicities, cast your net out there and see what the Word of God does. And folks, that's exactly what we're to do. This passage is a passage, this commission is a passage preeminently designed to start local churches in other geographical areas. Now I'm pausing. I want you to think about that. In other words, this passage is ultimately designed for churches to give birth to churches. Where? All the nations of the earth. The hard places, the easy places. The places that are never heard, yes, there are those in the world today, and places that have heard. It is preeminently, and we see this in Acts, Acts chapter 13. We see the church in Antioch, the Holy Spirit setting aside certain men. And what did they do when they went to Crete? Did they start a campus Antioch? No, they started a what? A church. And every place they went, they proclaimed the gospel. And where the Lord gathered disciples, they organized them in the local New Testament assemblies, and they kept moving. And then they went back. Why did they go back? They wanted to strengthen them. Why did they go back? They wanted them in order. What did they do? They taught them all things that Jesus Christ had commanded. Everybody following that? This is the preeminent goal and aim of the commission. 
And I've had the privilege outside of <clears throat> this assembly, if I'm remembering correctly, I didn't give a long time, my wife will let me know later. She, she knows all the details. <clears throat> and when I, when I jump into something, I know, I just say to myself, you don't hear this, I say, I'm going to get the details wrong. Okay. But I think this is the only assembly where I've not had someone called out of that assembly to go to plant churches. Wouldn't it be a gift for us to lay hands on a messenger to be going for the purpose of making disciples in a geographical area? He can't go to the whole world, right? He goes to a geographical area for the express <laughs> purpose of preaching the gospel. The Holy Spirit gathers disciples together. What does He do? He organizes it into a local New Testament assembly, and when He does, He baptizes them. And that church then <clears throat> is taught all things that the Lord has commanded them. Everybody see that? Very simple, but very powerful. And secondly, it is for us to echo the voice of Christ in our local geographical area so that they would be made disciples and come and what? Become a part of our local New Testament assembly. What will we do to that disciple? Baptize them and teach them. This is the aim of the commission. And folks, the first apostles did do that. <clears throat> now I want to close by giving four things that this commission implies <clears throat> when it comes to missions. We call it missions. And I, did, I got three of these from an article that I read from GFA. Here's three that I think flow out of this commission. Number one, <clears throat> since the church is to make disciples of all nations, <clears throat> this implies that local New Testament churches will be formed. I just preached about that. Churches beget what? Churches. We're not just out to beget individuals. People are begotten through our proclamation of the gospel so that they can become identified with a local body of Jesus Christ. Secondly, <clears throat> since the church is to make disciples of all nations, this implies that these new local New Testament churches will be started in their own indigenous language. If I go to Africa and I start a church, what kind of church should it be? Should I teach them English? No. 
It's a church in their own what? In their own native or indigenous language. Everybody see that? Jesus says, reach all the ethnicities. Did all the ethnicities speak Hebrew? No. Did they all speak Greek? Well, if you went to the barbarians, as some of them did, went into India. No. Even Paul himself said that God had to give him the special gift of language so that he could reach other people with differing languages. And when he organized those places into churches of differing languages, he didn't change their language. Thirdly, since the church is to make disciples of all nations, this implies a messenger of a different culture and language sent to form a church of a different culture and language. I know, that, I know this sounds simple, but there's a move today to say, why waste money sending men of a different culture and a different language to go somewhere of a different culture and a different language? Folks, how long does it take for us to learn a language? Years. I know men that have been decades, and they still say they're learning the language. And then fourthly, since the church is to make disciples of all nations, this implies that a non-native messenger has to learn another language. There's kind of a sense today that an American can't reach Chinese or an American can't reach a Filipino, an American can't reach a European, an American can't reach an Islam, because they're not from that culture. Folks, the commission destroys that idea. Did Paul go to other cultures? Here's a Jew standing up and preaching to Gentiles. And we have a long history since Pentecost of sending non-native messengers. And in the book of Acts, they were given that gift of languages. Don't you wish we had that today? (laughs) But today, God does gift certain people to learn languages more readily than others. I wasn't one of those. So folks, when he gives this commission to make disciples of all nations, he understands the time and the money that's going to be involved to carry out the commission. Everybody see that? We're always looking for shortcuts and more efficient ways and oh, just do the commission. And watch what God does for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.